Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another edition of History Hack. Charlie's here today and she's very, very excited. She's very, very clueless, but she's very, very excited. Uh, Charlie, why are you excited? (laughs) I'm excited because we are in the 17th century and we are in the midst of all things anglo Dutch wars so I'm very very nerdy and excited and our guest today is the perfect person to talk to us about it we've got David Davis who is a repeat offender here at History Hack and I for one love having him in to chat to us he's the award-winning author of Peeps Navy and Kings of the Sea as well as being the author of the Quinton Journals which are excellent historical novels set on boaty boats and also some books set in Tudor times we're just going to ignore them a little bit what yeah, this boo, man yeah boo, boo boo Tudors hey I'm just back from the Richard III Society you want to hear the boo that the Tudors get fantastic <laughs> um what this man doesn't know about boaty things in the 17th century is not worth knowing so we're really glad to have him here today hello David hello hello both oh we love having you you're so good at the boaty stuff thank you too much pressure (laughs) no no pressure at all no no and it's pressure that you will entirely live up to because we're not about to hit you with jutland questions don't worry good Good. yeah we're going to stay firmly in the 17th i guess we should start with a, a little background into what's still a relatively little known conflict so why were the english fighting the dutch in the 1670s well, it's a pretty long story, really. I mean, the, the Dutch had only become independent officially in 1648. They'd fought this huge 80-year war of independence um, against Spain. And for a lot of that time, they'd actually been officially allied to England. Um, but there'd been quite a bit of tension at, at various times. There was always a tension about trade. Um, and what had basically happened in the latter years, so 1630s, 1640s particularly, was that Obviously, Dutch trade was a bit restricted by the fact they were still at war. England was at peace, and so England was mopping up a lot of the the carrying trade between uh, various European countries. Then, of course, 1648, suddenly you've got peace. The Dutch come back in. They're undercutting the English ships and so forth. So you've got a lot of tensions about uh, trade. Add into that... You know, the Dutch are a republic. Okay, England's a republic in the 1650s. Um, But even so, there are a lot of issues between them. There's a lot of um, tensions, a lot of quarrels um, over the years. 1623, for example, out in the East Indies, there'd been a massacre of settlers on an island called Amboyna, and that had been a big 
that was a huge propaganda thing for the English right through the 17th century, you know, that these settlers had been massacred by the, the terrible Dutch. So um, these these atrocity stories were driving the agenda to to quite an extent. So, yeah, I mean, that had been um, the case. Then, obviously, 1649, the king's executed, the Commonwealth comes in. They fairly quickly pass what's called the Navigation Act, and that's trying to ensure that goods are carried in English ships. Um, they're banning, you know, the Dutch effectively from carrying English trade. So that ups the ante even more. So it had gone back a long way, really, but it's particularly the sort of the 1640s, 1650s that the tension really cranks up. Yeah, because the one we're going to talk about is the third Anglo-Dutch war. So, I mean, I guess before we go to the sequel, we need to look at the first <laughs> two. I'm hoping that it isn't going to be like the Godfather part three when we get to it. <laughs> um, so what happens in rounds one and two? Okay, well, as I say, you've had the Navigation Act and that triggers the first Anglo-Dutch war, which, of course, is between the Commonwealth and the Dutch Republic. And that is basically very one-sided as a war. I mean, it, it's very one-sided in favour of England. And th- there's lots of reasons for that. One of them is that um, the English ships are much larger. Um, they've got a much, you know, many more guns on them, much bigger rate of fire and, and weight of fire and so on against the Dutch. And they adopt a new tactic called the line of battle. So they've got their ship, their guns on the side, blasting the Dutch to bits. So the war goes really, really well from the English point of view. But then at the end of 1653, Cromwell takes over. He's always had huge misgivings about fighting the Dutch, who he sees as fellow Protestants. And he ends the war very quickly. So there's a feeling among a lot of the people around him of unfinished business. You know, they were on the point of wiping out the Dutch as a commercial rival. Um, But the war had stopped prematurely. So after the Restoration, when the king comes back, um, there's this line of argument that's being put at Charles II's court to say, right, you know, let's have another go at the Dutch. Um, you've got a lot of the cavaliers, the people around Charles's courtiers, really wanting to have a chance of glory. Um, and the commercial, basic commercial reasons haven't gone away. In fact, I mean, they've, They've strengthened after the restoration because, you know, the Dutch are really monopolizing um, a lot of the trade. So 1664, um, a a new war starts, a second war. um, And this one, again, initially seems to go really well. First battle of the war, the Battle of Lowestoft in 1665. Big English victory, not really followed up quite as well as it could have been. And then, of course, from that point, it goes downhill. There's a couple of battles in 1666. Um, but, of course, the war ends effectively with a great disaster. The Dutch come into the Medway, um, carry away the flagship, the Royal Charles. And it's regarded as one of the most humiliating defeats in the whole of British history. What that does, though, is it adds a feeling, certainly in Charles, I think, and his brother James and the people around them, a lot of the people around them, revenge we want to get our own back we're not going to you know take this lying down um and so even though in one sense the trade issues are resolved to a certain extent after the second dutch war there's still a lot of tensions a lot of problems in the relations between the two countries gosh and not just in terms of of revenge against. I mean, that's possibly the most humiliating thing that has ever happened, isn't it? The the attack on Chatham Docks and oh, the yeah. towing away of the flagship, yeah, which they I mean, still it, have. It, it, it's it's right up there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you go to the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, I mean, they've got it was not an entire room devoted to it, but there is this one room where the stern piece of the Royal Charles is down at the far end, and it's. Absolutely stunning, you know, the way it's been um, displayed. But obviously the Dutch do make a great deal of it. And it's regarded as one of the great moments in Dutch history. Um, and quite rightly so. I mean, obviously it's uh, not quite regarded in the same way in this country <laughs> for obvious reasons, but there we are. Just scamps. 
Yeah, it wasn't yeah, it was very embarrassing. And the fallout from this, I mean, in terms of the not just getting revenge for that, of having to go back into a conflict to almost justify everything that's being said in the where's the money? We've spent an awful lot of money on fighting the Dutch and we haven't won. Yeah. And yeah. Parliament is full of wealthy merchants who know they're going to have to foot the bill yeah. for all this yeah. expensive stuff. Peeps is frantically writing reports left, right and centre to try and justify what they've done. And then they've got this is this is the thing that that was quite interesting. The the splitting of the fleet. So there was a there was a problem at, at one point, I think, in in 1666, where yeah. they, they split their forces and where they could have finished off the Dutch. And this this gets talked about for years and years and years. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, that leads to something called the Four Days Battle, which, as the name implies, is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, sea fights in the entire Age of Sail. Yeah, the fleet had that's been That's in divided. one of your books, isn't it? It's in the Quinton Journal. It is, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, it is. It, it's brilliant material. It really mm. is. And, and so little known, unfortunately. Um, because, I mean, four days of fighting, I mean, it's just unbelievable, you know, incredible. Most sea battles are a few hours tops and that's it. But these guys are hammering away at each other for four days in a row. Um, yeah. So, I mean, again, you've got the, the legacies of all this, all this fighting, you know, as, as you say, I mean, these great battles have been fought, all this money has been spent. Um, and what's been achieved? Well, very little in in real terms. So the, there's there is this an even bigger feeling of unfinished business um, that that's knocking around in the late sort of 1660s and then into the early 1670s. Gosh, and that starts bringing us into to where we're focusing our conversation today, which is on the Battle of Sol Bay itself. Now, this is the first first major engagement of the third round of Anglo-Dutch wars. But can you tell us who are, who are our main protagonists at this time? Who are our key players on land and on sea? Who's involved? Well, this, of course, is where the Third Dutch War is different to the previous two. Um, for one thing, England's got an ally, a huge ally, namely France. Um, and the reasoning behind that is partly, of course, Charles II thinks... France would be a very useful ally, to say the least. Um, the French king, Louis XIV, he's got his own issues with the Dutch. They've been saying some very nasty things about him and producing all sorts of scurrilous literature and, and so forth. And, of course, he hates the fact that they are they are Protestants, they are Calvinists, more to the point. Um, you know, he can easily regard Charles II as being, well, all but Catholic, really. I mean, you know, it's a close-run thing. But the Calvinists, the Dutch, are definitely beyond the pale as far as Louis is concerned. So he is really keen to to launch a huge attack um, on the Netherlands. And from his point of view, of course, it's very handy to have Charles and England on his side. So this very dubious deal is done, the secret treaty of Dover um, in 1670, by which they agree, obviously, they will launch a joint attack on the Netherlands, and Charles II says that he will uh, make England Catholic again, which has always been regarded as absolutely bizarre. You know, it's it's always been a huge blot on on Charles II's reputation. Of course, the $64,000 question is whether he ever meant it, (laughs) <laughs> or whether or whether it's just a ploy to get money um out of Louis the Fourteenth, well, just discuss. But um but but nevertheless, I mean that that was the point. And, and so you start to get the plans made for you know this huge war that's gonna start in sixteen seventy two. The plan is basically Louis and the French army are just gonna sweep into the Netherlands, um, take over the entire country. While at sea, a French squadron will join two English squadrons. They'll destroy the Dutch fleet. And that's the plan, essentially, to just take out the Dutch as a rival, um, political rival as far as Louis is concerned, an economic rival as far as uh, Charles is concerned. Of course, it doesn't really go to plan in any particular way at all, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, but that was the idea. So... 
this is the thing with the third war you know you you've got in a way much less emphasis on trade a much bigger emphasis on politics and some very very dubious politics at that okay so let's talk about some individuals because we love a few characters on yeah. this uh so james who <laughs> Charlie did a podcast on james <laughs> uh, of york last week uh <clears throat> Possibly yeah. not the greatest monarch that Britain's ever seen, but but tell us about him. Well, possibly not the greatest monarch. Well, probably not the greatest monarch by quite a long chalk. Probably not the greatest bloke called James involved in this battle. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, this is quite true. But the point was that I mean, actually at the time, a lot of people preferred James to Charles. I mean, this is, strikes us as odd, given what we know about what happens to James II later. And, you know, lots of people like Charles II because he's a bit of a party animal, he has all these interesting stories about him. There's all the mistresses, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Merry Monarch, you know, the, that whole package. But at the time, a lot of people preferred James because, of course, Charles could be very untrustworthy. He could be very devious. You never knew where you stood. You did know where you stood with James. He was very black and white, um, straight down the middle, um, and... Okay, he wasn't the cleverest guy in the world, but of course the point was at this time he did have a reputation as being a very, very brave soldier and sailor. You know, he'd fought with the French army in battles back in the 1650s when he was in exile. He's commanded the fleet at the Battle of Lowestoft in 1665, where he only very narrowly avoids being killed. So, you know, he... He's not one of these desk jockeys who's a long way behind the lines or sting the Admiralty and just sending the fleet out to do the fighting for him. He is there. He is the man in charge. He is on the quarterdeck of the flagship giving the orders. So perhaps we should sort of separate out James's reputation as a king yeah, and, and his reputation as a warrior. Well, if because you want very, to be nuance and stuff, then yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we like new ones. Come on, new ones, new ones is good. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, so we've got him. Um, you know, pr- their cousin Prince Rupert of the Rhine, very famous figure back in the days, a cavalry general. Um, but now he's an admiral, and so he is also there in the um, the English fleet. Um, the Earl of Sandwich, who'd been one of Cromwell's generals, he is also there in the um, in the fleet. Um, but the problem is, OK, in a way, the English can put together a very good, very experienced cast list, but the Dutch have got the star. Um, and the star is Admiral de Ruyter, mm-hmm. um, who, of course, had led the attack on the Medway in 1667. And he is absolutely brilliant as an admiral. I mean, he's rightly looked upon in the Netherlands in the same way that in this country Nelson is looked upon. You know, he is a great national icon, um, not just a forgotten historical figure. And, and so um, he, he is going to be the main protagonist on the Dutch side. The Dutch, of course, have a very funny political system in this period. They've got seven provinces, of which Holland is far and away the biggest and richest, um, and so when the war begins, the leaders effectively on the Dutch side politically are the De Witt brothers, Johan and Cornelis. Um, but that changes fairly quickly when the war starts. I mean, we'll probably get on to that later mm-hmm. in the um, somewhat horrible fate of the De Witts. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the protagonists on the, the two sides are really, really interesting. You know, so you've got some very famous, very interesting people there. Where's William of Orange fit into this? Because I think a lot of people think of him as being in charge of the Dutch at this time. Okay, Will, William, remember, is um, only 22. And the point was he was born posthumously. Um, his father had died beforehand. And his father had been not the ruler of the Netherlands as such. There's a term called Stadtholder, which is the um, uh, almost a kind of an elected ruler over the different provinces. Um, there's a tension between the people who favoured the House of Orange and the people who wanted an out-and-out republic. And for 22 years, the out-and-out republicans, led by the De Witts, have been in charge. But there are a lot of people in the Netherlands who always want the House of Orange in charge, 
And of course, what happens in a nutshell is when the war begins to just deal with the land war before we get on to Sol Bay and the sea war, um, Louis' army does sweep all before it. There are, you know, there's all sorts of disasters. It's known in Dutch as the Rampia, the year of disasters. Um, and the, the, the Wits are overthrown, and what happens then is what always happens in the Netherlands in an extreme crisis. You send for the nearest orange. Um, and, <laughs> and so William is basically summoned. He's given the traditional titles, and he's put in as the commander-in-chief to try and defend against the French invasion. Of course, he goes for what at the time would have been the equivalent of the nuclear option, um, given the na- nature of the Netherlands, they cut the dikes. They basically flood a huge tract of the country, which means that the French army can't get to Amsterdam. You've got this huge water barrier in the way. William's position, of course, is complicated because he's also the nephew of Charles and James. And one of the things that Charles certainly envisages is that if and when he and Louis win, they'll have William as a sort of very grateful puppet ruler of a tiny reduced rump of the old Netherlands. William's got other plans. And of course, this is where he really comes onto the world stage. You know, he's virtually unknown previous to this, this somewhat sort of sickly, callow youth. Um, but obviously he just rises to the task straight away and establishes this tremendous European reputation pretty much straight away. William is is Stuart through and through, ruthless. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely get, get on to, to him a little bit later. Mm. Um, <laughs> so just going back to James, because I think it's really interesting to separate out the military man from the slightly failed monarch. I think we can mm. say he failed. Mm-hmm. Why was he allowed to be out on a boat again at Sol Bay? Because he was... He was Brought home very hastily after Lowestoft. Yeah, there's never been a a clear um, explanation for this given. As you say, I mean, he is recalled by Charles in the um, 1665 campaign. He's not allowed to go to sea again, Um, whereas he is then allowed to go to sea in 1672. I think there's got to be a combination of factors that's going on. I mean, one is that um it, it's they expect to win this war very easily you know it's going to be a quick campaign um over by christmas as they said in uh. 1914 <laughs> you know the old cliche um but um also of course the circumstances have changed in 1665 in terms of as the throne you've got james and that's pretty much it. Yeah, there's a sister still, staying, still alive, but she's out in, in France. Um, you've got a couple of babies, and that's pretty much the Stuart royal family, whereas by 1672, James's daughters, Mary and Anne, they're now sort of eight, nine, ten years old, and it's a much more stable prospect, really. Even if James did get killed, you know, you've got potentially more stewards still. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's some sort of combination like that. And obviously James was very keen to do it. So, I mean, I think he's giving his brother grief all the time to say, you know, let me go out <laughs> again. Um, but yeah, the, the, it's um, quite an interesting family story, really, the uh, the steward succession at that particular point. More interesting than the Tudors is <laughs> That's the one I will always agree with that sentiment. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. <laughs> okay, so the Battle of Solvay. How does it come about? Okay, well, so we're talking about the 28th of May, 1672, so it's right at the start of the war. The war's only been declared for a few weeks at that particular point. The English and French fleet, the, the three squadrons, they're lying off um, Southwold in Suffolk, in Seoul Bay. It was much more of a bay then than it is now. There's a bigger headland um, to, to, the, to the north of it. Um, and so they are there. What they're expected to do is just get ready, go out, go across the Dutch side, and you know that they will be in charge of the whole sort of proceeding. Uh, De Reuter has other ideas. He, knowing that he's got an inferior force numerically, and in terms of you know the Dutch ships are smaller because of their shallow coastal waters. And so he decides he's going to launch a preemptive attack, almost the same idea as Pearl Harbor. Um, and so what he does is he decides to attack the Anglo-French fleet as it's at, at anchor, getting the provisions in off the Suffolk coast. And, of course, that is completely unexpected on the other side. Um, James and Sandwich are ashore. There's this legend that Sandwich is actually in the arms of a serving wench um, <laughs> in the, um, you know, one of the local um, establishments. Um, and so this, it's a dawn attack as well, pretty much uh, early hours into, into dawn. And so there's panic. There's total panic on the Anglo-French fleet. Um, the result of that is, of course, the thing that's absolutely pivotal to the battle that everything starts to get underway, but the wind is from the northeast, uh, which favours De Reuter. De Reuter's coming in from the southeast. Now, the two fleets get underway. The two English squadrons get underway to the north. The French squadron, which is meant to lead the fleet, is meant to be the vanguard, but they get underway to the south. So the fleet splits, and that is one of well, it's both a pivotal moment for the actual outcome of the battle, but it's also a pivotal moment in the way the war then works through in terms of English consciousness, if you like, in terms of the way people think about the French and the way they think about this particular war. So it's a uh, it, it, in a sense, it's perfectly understandable because, you know, the, the, there's no, there were no set orders. Maybe James should have anticipated this, um, but rem remember, flag signalling by warships is very, very crude at the time. It's very rudimentary. Um, the French were the vanguard squadron. They would have expected to lead the fleet to sea. So, of course, they quite reasonably took the line of, well, why didn't the two English squadrons follow us? because we were going the right way. Um, huh. So the, after the battle, there is quite a bit of name-calling, inevitably, in, uh, you know, in, in these sort of terms. But, um, but that, that, that's how the basic problem arose. Um, what then happens, of course, is that um, De Reuter has to divide his fleet as well. He sends a squadron down to deal with the French, but then he turns his main fleet onto the, the two English squadrons, which are going off to the northward. Um, often the battles in this period centre on attacks on the flagships. Mm. And that's very much what happens at Seoul Bay. The, the Dutch pour most of their efforts into attacking Royal Prince, which was James's flagship, um, and Royal James, which was the Earl of Sandwich's flagship. Um, and the, you know, the, the battles those two ships involved in are absolutely colossal. You've got other ships coming up to support them. You've got the Dutch trying to get fire ships in um, to attack them. And, of course, that's 
the most famous moment of the battle. And there's a wonderful picture of this in the National Maritime Museum at Greenwich, where a Dutch fire ship does successfully grapple onto the Royal James um, and burns it. Almost all the crew are killed. So you're talking about 800 men. Wow. Um, and of course, Sandwich is one of them. Um, they don't find Sandwich's body until days later, you know, and he's obviously been in the sea all that time. The only way they can identify him is because of his sash with the Order of the Garter on it. Um, and so they fish Sandwich out and he's given this huge funeral um, and so on. Um, but yes, I mean, it, it, it's an absolutely colossal battle. A total number of casualties on in the two English squadrons, including the um, the numbers on the Royal James, would have been between 1,600 and 2,000. I mean, the French fl- fight very, very well. They have about 450 killed. So, you know, the casualty rate, the killed rate, is in excess of 7 8% of the total manpower. So it, it's... Um, Wow. It's a huge battle in that sense. Very few ships are actually lost. You know, there's only Royal James and a couple of small ships on the English side. There's a couple of smallish ships on the Dutch side. So the material losses aren't huge um, in, in one way. It's not like these battles, you know, where one side completely wipes out the other. But clearly the fighting was incredibly intense um, during it. It's, um, it would have been very, very hard fought indeed. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Gosh, um, James has to he has to move his flag several times, doesn't he? Because this is a big, big part of it, like you said, about flagships. Yeah. Oh, the, 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 that's right. And I mean, again, you know, the they are going after James. They are targeting it. I mean, the Royal Prince, there are some wonderful um, drawings um, and etchings and so on of the battle that are kept again at, at Greenwich. And you can see the Royal Prince, you know, the masts just disappear, basically. And so you're left virtually with this dismasted hulk um and then they're getting ships into tow it tow it away and so on so james then goes to another ship that's blasted to bits he switches it again um and and, and yeah i mean the, the, this was the um the sort of fighting that um that was going on it was really really vicious really bloody uh one of the french admirals um, is killed because he was a Protestant. He's buried in Rochester Cathedral. You know, he's given a very grand funeral. So it it, it was uh, again what not one of those where the admirals just took a back seat. They are really in the in the heat of it. We had a, a lovely conversation with Mayor Wassell Smith from um, the Maritime Museum at Greenwich. They're restoring a piece of art called the Sol Bay Tapestry. Yeah. And it's enormous, and it shows the destruction of the the Royal James of um, and the the death of Sandwich. Yeah. Uh, no, no jokes about soggy sandwiches here, because yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're too classy for that, right? <laughs> we are. We're way too classy on. Good, on good, good. But um, but he was a big, he was a big deal, wasn't he? As a as a naval hero. Oh, he's a, he's a huge figure, and I mean, he's one of the architects of the restoration. <clears throat> as well as being obviously, you know, this huge mentor figure to Samuel Pepys in the first part of the diary, um, the diary years. Yeah, so he is um, a huge, huge figure in history, the, the Earl of Sandwich. Again, perhaps one of those people is not quite as well known as he should be. Um, but I think it's a sign of how he was regarded at the time is that he's given this huge um, waterborne funeral. They have a waterborne procession going up from Greenwich where his body is brought up to uh, London. Um, and it's very much a precursor of Nelson's funeral. That quite a lot of Nelson's aspects of Nelson's funeral are deliberately based on the Earl of Sandwiches. Wow. Yeah. Gosh, that's really interesting. And, and he was 
we've, we've touched on this. He was one of these figures who was a big player in the Commonwealth. He, yeah. he, he was a, a big, important person and then gets so involved in, in the restoration that he's almost, he's let off and all, all is forgiven, all is erased. Yeah. Indemnity and oblivion. Yeah. You and can't he punish everyone, can you? No. You'll have well, and, and, of course, he gets the title out of it, Earl of Sandwich. And then the, fo- the fourth Earl subsequently, of course, um, immortalises the uh, the word <laughs> and catapults it into the English language. Because <laughs> he, he won't get up from the gaming table, so he gets his service to bring him. <laughs> On every yeah. pub menu in Britain. Yeah, some, sure. some meat between two slices of bread and the rest is history. <laughs> so, so, uh, <laughs> so in terms of this battle, it is very Jutland-like in that both claim victory um, and try and bluff their way out of this, saying that they've come yeah. out winners. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's indecisive, undoubtedly indecisive, but there are some very important consequences of it. I mean, obviously, what Charles and Louis had wanted and expected their fleet to do was to go out, get command of the sea, straight away, either destroy De Reuter or keep him in port, and that would aid the French invasion of the Netherlands. <coughs> um, in practice, of course, the attack means that that can't happen. There can't be an invasion from the sea, which was very much something that Charles II favoured. So he would get a chunk of land over there um, and Louis wouldn't get absolutely everything. So it, it prevents that. The other big consequence, of course, is that um, it generates this suspicion of the French. Why did the French go the wrong way? And inevitably, you know, something's never changed. People go on about conspiracy theories now. There are conspiracy theories galore all the time in the 17th century. And the conspiracy theory about Soul Bay starts up virtually straight away, which is the French had deliberate orders to go a different way, and in other words, to expose the English ships, the main brunt of the attack. (coughs) So this is um, a story that then grows and grows. It goes through into 1673. There's another battle then at the end, in August 1673, the Battle of the Tessel, where the same thing seems to happen. The French squadron stays apart from the the fighting. People put two and two together. They add that to what's happened at Soul Bay, and they say, ah, Louis XIV is playing this cunning double game. He's, you know, putting the English into the worst possible positions so that he will get all the goodies. He will not be challenged by Charles. He won't have to share anything out with Charles um, because the French fleet has deliberately left the English fleet in the lurch. And, of course, what they wouldn't have known at the time, what the ordinary people wouldn't have known at this time, was that actually the arrangements between the English fleet and the French fleet had been hammered out when they when they worked out the Treaty of Dover, the, the secret bits and the bits that were published, in that Louis would have quite liked to have had his own ships and his own navy. But we said, no, 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 we'll, we'll provide the ships and the navy because yeah. to have a power like France with all their money, the seemingly limitless resources of Louis the 14th for them to be a naval power as well would be very, very, very bad, not just for us, but for all of Europe. So well, do you think there's the a bit of shade there, like being a oh. bit crap just to, sh- to show us? <laughs> well, I mean, the point is it's got to be remembered. The French Navy was very new. It was virtually non-existent 10 years before this battle. Um, You know, Louis had built it from scratch in that time. And, of course, you're absolutely right. I mean, that was one of the things that had generated more suspicion in England. Well, why do the French want this enormous and expensive new navy? Uh, But, of course, to be charitable to um, the French in terms of what happens in in the Third Dutch War in the battles, because they were so new, they didn't have the experience. They didn't have the experience of the fleet manoeuvring that the English had, because as we said you know, earlier on, the English have fought two huge wars against the Dutch in the last 20 years. Lots of the same people are in command. 
and the French simply can't call on that at all. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the things the French get wrong is down to simple inexperience. They've got some tremendous sailors. And as I said, I mean, they certainly at Sobe Bay, they fight very, very well. Um, but, you know, you can't overcome that lack of the backstory, if you like, that the English and Dutch fleets have got. Gosh. In the, the fallout from Salt Bay is, is just is enormous. The, the amount of things that happen in the, in the months that follow this are, are huge and, and have long-lasting implications. So you touched upon what happened in Holland. Let's go to them first. They're having a very bad year. What happens to their political leaders? Um, yeah, I think you might want to censor this bit. Um, <laughs> because, as I say, the De, De Witts are overthrown, but it's, it's, it doesn't stop at them sort of retiring to the country and uh, you know living out the rest of their lives in comfort, as so many politicians do. Uh, because the mob um, was so enraged against them and blamed them for what had happened, you know, the, the French invasion and all the disasters that had taken place. Um, basically, and not to put too fine a point on it, they're literally torn apart. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're strung up um, upside down. It's quite similar to what happened to Mussolini in the end, actually. And um, then it gets the the really nasty stage where certainly we know the dogs are eating bits of them. Um, and there are some stories around that people are eating bits of them as well. Um, it, it, it just becomes incredibly vicious, incredibly nasty. Um, and it's in, the, in the film, actually, that was made about seven or eight years ago, the Dutch made a film about De Reuter. And they do actually show this uh, particular scene. And it's virtually like, you know, suddenly into this film about 17th century naval warfare, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre suddenly <laughs> arrived. And, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it's very, very brutal indeed what happens to De Witt. Of course, the flip side of that is that then William of Orange is in power mm. and he proves to be an absolute political and military genius um, who then sort of creates alliances and and and, and so on um, and carries on fighting the French. It becomes his life mission, really, to, to, to fight the French from this point onwards for what they had done to, to his country. Very different story in England, of course, um, because, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, Parliament is, has always been very twitchy about this war. They just didn't like the idea of being allied, allied to the French. And so once things start to go really badly, um, Parliament is getting more and more vociferous, wanting to pull out of the um, of the war. And, uh, of course, one of the things that then happens is they pass the Test Act in 1673, so Catholics can't hold office anymore. It's been established by this point. It's in the spring of 73. It becomes absolutely clear that James has converted. He is now a Catholic. And so James has to give up being um, the Lord High Admiral, uh, which is a huge blow to him because I think he really loved that that position. Um, and about six six to eight months after that, England withdraws unilater- unilaterally from the war. Charles has basically run out of money. Mm. Um, Parliament is, as I say, absolutely furious about everything that's gone on. And so they make peace. Gosh. I just want to go back to a point about William of Orange, who I think was very much a product of his family, whether mm. whether it was just genetic that he had this. But in the in the uh, the weeks and months following Sol Bay, Charles sends a couple of ambassadors over to Holland to go and talk to William, carrying a letter from him. And sidebar for any 17th century nerds, he sends Arlington and Buckingham, which is just a, I mean, it would have been like a joke sending these two because they hated each other. They go to William and they give, give him this letter from Charles, which says, if you stop the war now, you're getting really bad advice from your politicians. If you stop the war now, I will back you and give you your birthright. You will be stadtholder. You can be, I'll make you king. I'll make you king. Yeah, yeah. 
It'll be fabulous, but you're getting bad advice from these DeVitt boys. You need to get rid of them. So what William does is, first of all, he tells Arlington that he he won't stop fighting until the last Dutchman dies in the last ditch. He's not he's not backing down for anybody. But he has the letter printed and published so that the ordinary people can read it and suddenly know that, hang on, we're sending a load of our men to die in a war that could be over if it wasn't for these DeWitt brothers. And then they eat them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, William runs rings around Charles, really. I mean, Charles just assumes that because of the family relationship and he being the head of the family, that, well, William will just do what he says and will go along with it. But I mean... What he's forgotten is that, of course, William is a Dutchman, first and foremost, a very patriotic Dutchman. And, of course, he's descended from, you know, this amazing line of heroes in Dutch history. I mean, going back to the very start of that 80-year War of Independence, where the leader of the Dutch for the first 20-odd years of that was the first William of Orange. He's Mm -hmm. the namesake of the man who's regarded as the great sort of founding hero of the entire country. So when you've got that kind of um, background and those kinds of expectations on your shoulders, well, it's going to work one way or the other, isn't it? It's going to be either a complete and utter disaster mm. or it's going to be a tremendous success. And, of course, William did live up to it. He did live up to the the billing of his family name. I think he's a fascinating Absolutely fascinating guy, fascinating yes. character, and how, you know, spoiler, ends up becoming King of England. Yep, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And, and, and that, as they say, is another story. Indeed. Uh, we're here today commemorating the 350th anniversary of Soul Bay. How is it remembered today in terms of naval history? Was it an important battle, or is it okay that we kind of ignore this entire conflict? I mean, in your world, no, because you spend your whole life writing about it. So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, it, it's totally different on the two sides of the North Sea. I mean, all of these conflicts, the whole of the Anglo-Dutch Wars, aren't really very well known at all um, in Britain. Um, and inevitably, all the focus tends to be on Nelson and the Napoleonic War and, uh, and so forth. And for obvious reasons, really, you know, you've got their great hero, you've got nice clear-cut massive victories over the French, um, and so on. The, the the Dutch wars are much more ambivalent in, in many respects. You know, you've got these very complex motivations going on, very complex individuals um, involved in them. Um, and certainly, I mean, when it comes to the Third Dutch War, there's the whole business, of course, the Treaty of Dover. Charles has done this secret deal with the French. And of course, for, for many, many years, historians were absolutely outraged at this idea of um, converting England back to Catholicism. Um, <coughs> and um, it, it's, so Soul Bay is generally not very well known at all. I mean, there has been, I think, one warship called HMS Soul Bay, and, 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 and that was it. Whereas, of course, in the Netherlands, you know, this whole period... Um, is regarded as their golden age of naval history and of everything else as well, the golden age of art and culture and and so on. So, you know, the Dutch to this day, for example, one of the biggest ships in their fleet at the moment is called Johan de Witt. Another is called de Reuter. Um, they commemorate this period in the same way that in this country, the whole Nelson era is commemorated. It's on the same kind of level. Um but unfortunately, yes, this, so much of this is so little known in, in Britain. It's a shame. We don't like to talk about the wars that we didn't necessarily win. <laughs> it's a little bit embarrassing. Well, quite, yeah. And I mean, that, 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 that's the problem is in terms of um, public perceptions and so forth. They're, they're a long way down the list, really. Oh, so, David, thank you so much for talking us through Salt Bay, 350 years. Um, hopefully people will continue to maybe look into the Anglo-Dutch wars and maybe sort of have revisit it and see what's going on. Do you have perhaps a book that you could recommend that people could read if they are interested in this time? Uh, well, of course, Modesty Forbids. 
Um, <laughs> no, but, this yeah. is, it's it. a plug. We want do the it. plug. Do <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously my own uh, books, Peeps' is Navy and Kings of the Sea, have got things about it as, uh, you know, the... the, the um, uh, the, there are some general histories of the Anglo-Dutch wars out there. There's a very good one by J.R. Jones, for example, uh, which I think is still in print. Um, on my website, jddavis.com, to give that a plug, uh, if you go to the search facility and put in Soul Bay, there is a blog um, that Frank Fox, another expert on the period, and I did a few years back about the uh, the fleet at Seoul Bay. Um, so there are some sources out there. Just to, They just perhaps need to be dug up a little bit. Fantastic. Well, we can definitely help you with that. I'm sure we can get the, the people who know to uh, put some books on our bookstore for you to buy. But thank you so much for joining us, David. As ever, it's a pleasure to talk to you. And we hope you'll come back and talk to us again very soon. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.